Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you are here. Uh, if this is your first time visiting us today, this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and we come to you from McKinney, Texas, in our little house church that we have. Blessed be to the Lord. Uh, if this is your first time here, I hope you did not come to be entertained. As all those who tutor under me, they all know I'm not an entertainer. I'm here to teach the Word of God. And you're here to learn, to grow, and to get stronger in the Lord, or to maintain in the Lord, wherever you may be. But we're all going somewhere. None of us is plateaued, and if we are, we're in a dangerous spot. We all need to be climbing the hill. If you're on the side of a hill, and you're climbing up the side of the hill, which represents the life of a Christian, and as you're climbing up the hill, if you stop, generally, unfortunately, you're not going to stay stopped for long. You're either going to go backwards, or you're going to keep fighting to go up the hill. Because when you're on a steep hill... You can't stand still for too long before you start sliding back down, or you got to keep climbing the hill. So we're all any we're all at a stage in our walks with the Lord, or we need to come to have a relationship with the Lord. So bless God, we're all here. Let's open up with a word of prayer to hear the word of the Lord. Lord God, thank you so much for bringing us all here today. Lord God, thank you so much for uh, helping us. Lord God, helping us those of us that are yours. Lord God, that we're continuing to climb the mountain. Lord God, thank you. Lord God, that you help us. Lord God, that you don't leave us alone. And Lord, even through the valleys of the shadows of death, Lord God, as, as David had to go through many times, Lord God, you help us, Lord. He said, I shall not fear, because why? Because, Lord, I know you are with me. Lord, that is our only consolation in this life, Lord God, to know that you are with us. Oh, Lord, that is our only consolation. Lord, this world offers no consolation but death. And, and death to, to somebody that's not in you, Lord God, is not a consolation. It's a curse. Lord God, and it's, and it's frightening, Lord God, as I was there prior to 18 years ago, Lord God, I was there. I was, I was the one scared to die. What happens to me when I die? Oh, I just don't know. But Lord, Lord, death for now, for somebody that's in Christ, we know that we have the victory. The sting of death is no more. Lord God, thank you so much. And Lord, we thank you, Lord God, as our brother, dear brother mentioned today in, in our pre-service warm-ups and stuff, Lord God, how he mentioned that, uh, Lord, you're pursuing everybody. Lord God, you're, you're always pursuing. Lord, you're pursuing until the day we die. Lord God, even when we're in your arms, Lord, Lord God, just, just, just like, Lord God, and, and this, this will actually confirm it because, Lord, as a married man of almost 23 years in March, Lord God, I, I know that just all the time, Lord, I'm still pursuing my wife's heart. Lord, and, and with date nights and, and, and movie nights and, and spending time together, Lord, and, and just laying there snuggling and just talking with one another. And, and Lord, I know, I know I'm still pursuing her heart. Lord, I know it, it's mine, but although I, I know it's mine, but that doesn't mean I just rest with it just knowing it's mine, Lord God. That knowing it's mine means that now I take action to keep going, Lord, to, to, to continue to, to captivate and to love that heart. Lord God, thank you so much, Lord God, that that's a perfect picture of just how you are with us. Amen. And Lord, we just pray right now, Lord God, as I mentioned earlier during communion, Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would speak to our hearts today, Lord God, and that we would not just be hearers of the word only, Lord God, but that we'd be doers of the word, Lord God. For, for it's not the hearer that's blessed, Lord God, it's the doer that's blessed. We thank you, Lord God, and we love you, and we praise you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles or you can listen along as I read, whichever you'd like to do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. And I know this is going to kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of be a deep breath here. We're going to be in 
verses 13 through 43. Ouch. Now, I know before I've spent an hour on two verses, so what are, you, are we going to be here 30 hours? Well, no, I'm just kidding. We won't be here 30 hours. Bless the Lord. So uh, the title of our sermon today, Acts 13, 13 through 43, is The Righteous Trojan Horses. The Righteous Trojan Horses. So I'll give you a chance to get into your Bibles and get to where you're supposed to be for a moment there. If you're already there, praise God. If you're not, I'll give you a moment. Bless the Lord. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. So if we're there, let's begin to read Acts 13, verses 13 through 43. Bible says this. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Patbos or Patbos, they came to Perga and Pampolonia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Poseidon, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he went up with their, or he he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan and distributed their land to them by allotment, after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel, the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Notice that he found David, the son of Jesse, a man after his own heart. He didn't just give him that title for no reason. And then he said, upon that, upon kind of finding that he was a man after his own heart, who will do my will, he said of David. For this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even their voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen by many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Uh, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, 
that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will know by no means believe, though the one were declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that those words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace. Of God. So last week we left off with Paul and Barnabas and John Mark in Paphos or Paphos or uh, on the island of Cyprus, right? And, and God doing that miracle, right, to the false prophet, right? And then Sergius Paulus seeing it and believing also the teachings of Paul and Barnabas, he turned to the Lord, or the Bible says he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we open up with God's missionaries on the road, or we'll say the sea again, right? Uh, Look at verse 13 one more time as we're going to go through them again. Uh, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, that means they left the island of Cyprus, got on the boat, and went across the sea again. They came to Perga and Pamplonia, which would be that meant they, they sailed across the sea to the mainland, across the Mediterranean again. And, big aside here, big kind of aside here, it doesn't seem very big, but it is kind of big. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. At a quick glance here, what John Mark does is innocent. Hey, he departs from them, heads back from, to Jerusalem. That's just it. End of story. The end, right? Not really. What he does is not innocent. With a deeper biblical look, what he really does He abandons them. He abandons them in the thrusts of their ministry. Uh, John Mark was Paul and Barnabas' helper, you see. Uh, And and this is the one that I was talking to you about last week. I I remember I had said last week, there's one in Scripture that there are some that are called and some just go, right? Some Some are called and we know that they're called because they have that supernatural birthing of that call from God. And then they stick with it. And you know that they're called because they just can't give it up because you know it's, it's, it's got a, like a supernatural birth from God. But the ones that just, are, the ones that just go, they kind of just go. And then when things don't work out like they think that they should have, because I'm going to tell you right now, one brother prayed for me before church about ministry. And I've been ministering for the Lord for about 16 years, 17 years. And I'll tell you, it's not easy. Ministry is nothing like anybody thinks it's going to be. It doesn't go your way ever, ever. Ministry is tough. Ministry is tough because when you're dealing with people and then when you're dealing with God and people, ministry is tough. Well, here we see the one in John Mark that was not called or sent. He, he just kind of went on his own. He abandons them right in the thrust of the work of the Lord, so leaves them lacking the ministerial help that they needed. Him leaving them doesn't go over well with Paul. Uh, Fast forward to Acts chapter 15. We see Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along again because that's how long he was gone, from 13 to 15. And and even though he abandons him here in Acts 13, and what what do we know about Barnabas? Why would Barnabas want to do that? Well, he's known in Scripture as the great encourager. 
So, of course, a great encourager. He's willing to give many chances. But Paul, on the other hand, Paul says, no way in Acts 15. And they have a sharp disagreement over what he did. So strong their disagreement was, they part ways. They stop ministering for the Lord together, and they part ways. Now, before you start thinking Paul was some kind of evil, heinous jerk, and how could he do that? He should have just been accepting, you know, of John Mark. I can kind of understand why. And here's why. Let's look at some things. If someone joins your work, then in essence, especially then, they give you their word, okay, that they're in it with you and they're committing to the work of the Lord. They're giving you their, their I'm in, man. I'm in. You know, I, we're going to sail seas and we're, I could just see that. I could just see it. He's so excited and he, we're going to sail seas. We're going to go save souls. We're going to, you know, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And when they do, you put, as the leader, Paul was most likely the leader, you put a certain level of trust in them to stay and be faithful and finish the work. And if, or sadly, if they abandon you right in the heat of the work, which they were trying to help you do, what happens is you lose trust in them. You can't trust them anymore. You can't count on them to be faithful, right? It's hard. In Paul's defense, for as to why he refused John and Mark joining them again in Acts 15, you can't blame them if you think about it this way. We are, as Christians, in a spiritual war. We are totally in a spiritual war, which means that if you're in the war, you're called a what? You're called a soldier, right? And what John Mark does to them here in Acts 13, if we look at it modern day, what he really did, we call that in the army today, we call that desertion. He was a deserter. He deserted the battle that they were in. And would you, if you were a soldier in an army, would you want a soldier next to you that you couldn't trust to have your back, one that you thought was going to run away on you at any moment in time? Heavens no! Heavens no! The guy that I want next to me, I want to know that that guy there, he's going to lock arms with me, and we're going to either go down, we're going to either survive together, or or we're going to die together. That's, that's the kind of guy that I want in battle with me. I, I don't know about you. So I can totally understand why uh, Paul doesn't want him to come back. Now, now Paul does. There, he does prove himself later. And as we see in Scripture, he's actually with Paul in prison later on in Paul's ministry. So they do have an amends. And Paul and Barnabas do have an amends. But, but I could see Paul's hesitation to why he didn't want him to come back. Because him leaving was not a good thing, and it wasn't innocent, and it wasn't pure, and it wasn't of good motives. Uh, you know, for one, it just sounds like he just leaves. He doesn't say, well, here, this, that, and the other thing. And, and we know that that's not good. When you join a work and then turn back after giving your word, what did, what did Jesus say in Luke 9:62? He said this, No one having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Lot's wife comes to my mind when I think of what John Mark did to Paul and Barnabas here. So, so the moral of the story, the short story that I gave here, Christians, if you give your word that you'll stand by someone in ministry or that you're going to, I'm going to join you, brother. We're in it together. Be faithful. Don't be a deserter. Uh, desertion is of the devil. Faithfulness is of God. Anyway, I told you last week that if God reminded me that we talk about the guy that was not called or sent, but that he kind of went on his own, well, there you go. That's, that's, that's the one right there. So moving on as they move on, look at verse 14. But So, so John Mark's gone. Now it's just Paul and Barnabas, just on their own, no ministerial helper. 
Verse 14, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Poseidon. Uh, so they're on the road or water again. God's continuing to keep them moving. Where do they go? Antioch, but not the Antioch in Syria. This is an Antioch in Poseidon. And yes, if you look on ancient maps, there were two Antiochs. There weren't just one. And once they're there, they, rest of verse 14, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, notice again that they traveled from Perga in the country of Pamplonia, which is modern-day Turkey, to Antioch and Poseidon without preaching Jesus Christ to anyone along the way. Can we say God's timing again, just like we talked about last week? And again, notice same as our MO as we read of last week. Same mode of operation. Once they're in the location that God wants them to be in, in his timing, they go in or into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sit down. Why did they go? Why did they do this? Well, the scripture says they went in so that they could kind of listen to the Old Testament, the reading of the Tanakh. This was a regular weekly thing. As Christians have church, so did the Jews. And when they got together and they had their church, one of the things that they did, it was kind of the staple of what they did. They read over the law and the prophets in their, in their, in their messages. This is just what they did. So Paul and Barnabas kind of here, what they did is they kind of joined in for Jewish church. Kind of how you guys came here for church. These guys joined in for Jewish church. Uh, Again, did you notice the normal practice of these early Jewish Christians? They just walk or go right into the synagogues. They just walked right in. And as normal, listen to this. This this floored me because God showed me. I didn't actually know this last week when I taught you guys this. But God showed me what I said last week was totally right on because think of this. Notice as normal as it was for Paul and Barnabas to walk in, notice how normal it was for the Jews that weren't Christians to have them there. Look at verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, they saw they were Jews, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. How normal was it for them to have Paul and Barnabas there? It was like any of you coming in here. I, I... Christians coming into church, hey, man and brother, and hey, if you got words, say, I mean, this totally the rulers of the synagogue give them the floor of the whole synagogue. There could have been a couple hundred people here. Paul, the, the rulers of the synagogue give these guys, these Christian Jews, the whole floor to the whole synagogue to talk. Now, now if you think somebody's there, that, let, let's say a Muslim came into this church. Right. And, you know, you could tell a Muslim by the way they dress and kind of how they act. And I, as a, the leader of this church, wouldn't say, oh, a Muslim, yeah, get up and share your word, whatever you want to say. So these guys here, they thought nothing of Paul and Barnabas being there. It was totally natural for them to be there. Why would they have done this, though? Well, they saw Paul was a Pharisee or a religious Jew of even the most religious Jews. And how would they have known? Well, you see, Pharisees, because Paul was still a Pharisee, he even states this way later on in, in, in the book of Acts, he states that he's still a Pharisee, way later on, like into the 20s in Acts. So he remained a Pharisee, he just remained a Christian Jewish Pharisee. So, so they saw the way he dressed. Pharisees, really religious Jews, they kind of dressed the part. They kind of dressed with certain clothing. They grew their hair a certain way. They kind of had long locks in their hair. And, and of course, their manner of conduct, they would have been very stoic. You know, they wouldn't have been running around like a teenage kid. You know, these guys were kind of very professional religious Jews. And so they saw Paul as this kind of religious Pharisee that he was. And of course, 
Why else would you give somebody that was a Jew or a Pharisee the floor? It's because they didn't know that they were Christians. They just didn't know. And most definitely, not knowing that Paul or Barnabas were Christian Jews, they thought it'd be awesome. Think about this. Like, for instance, if I had, if, if just one day we're having church, and one, one of the, you know, there's a few in our country that are some well-known, really biblical Christian pastors. And let's say I, you know, got saying a little word, and one of these well-known, really awesome, you know, Christian pastors was in here. It would be an honor for me if they would stand up and say a word on the text that I just read. I mean, think about it. I mean, that, that guy who's been preaching 30, 40, 50 years, and I've only been preaching for five, and man, it'd be an honor for me to have a, like a very experienced, well-known, you know, exhortationer and exegetical teacher in my church just say a word. Well, here, they saw Paul as a total awesome religious Pharisee. So they were actually excited to see a Pharisee in their church and say, hey, Pharisee, hey, would you stand up and kind of give us your exhortation on what that scripture that we just read meant? So totally natural. They didn't know that they were Christians. They just seriously thought that they were, you know, these, these awesome Jewish teachers, which makes, though, a very interesting situation, hence the title of our subject, title of our sermon today, Paul and Barnabas, whether they knew it or not, whether they tried to do it or not, they were really righteous Trojan horses for Christ. That's kind of what happens. What is a Trojan horse? Merriam-Webster, someone or something intended to defeat or subvert from within, usually, now this is why I titled the sermon Righteous Trojan horses, usually by deceptive means. We know that Paul and Barnabas didn't go in there to deceive, for that's not what Christ said. Christ did not say ever to deceive. They just went there, hey, they were going to preach the gospel. They were Jews. You know, they were like, I want to hear the word of God. It's, it's the word of God. You know, and, it, and if God opens the door for us to preach, well, we're going to preach. So again, they didn't go there to be deceptive. Simply, on the outside, they looked like traditional super religious Jews, but on the inside, they were tremendous warriors or soldiers for Jesus Christ and the gospel of the, of the new way that God had made to save people in Christ Jesus alone, of course. Uh, but these Jews were going to find out pretty quick that they had kind of made a big mistake. But although it's not a big mistake spiritually, it was just a big mistake as where if they'd have known they were Christian Jews, they would not have given them the floor. Same as if a Muslim came into my church, I wouldn't give the Muslim the floor. I would hope the Muslim would listen to the message and turn to Christ, but I would not give him the floor to speak on, to speak to my whole church as far as what he had to say. Anyway, so Paul gets this really, I call, I really call it in, in my overview, I title it the divine, not title it, I, I mentioned in there that it's a divine stage. Really it is. Paul and Barnabas go in there and they're there they're to hear the word of God and maybe talk to some people maybe after the service is over, but God gives them a divine stage. He gives them a golden opportunity as the righteous tro Trojan horses for Christ that they were with the gospel. And, and look what Paul does with it. He, as we read on, you'll see he takes this divine golden opportunity to preach Jesus Christ in a Christian sermon. But as you're going to see, uh, just like Stephen back in Acts 7, 1 through 53, Paul doesn't just jump right in. He doesn't stand right up and he doesn't say, Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in the gospel, that's it, come to Jesus, you got to get saved. 
he kind of comes in, he, when he comes in, he kind of comes in with a little history. Then he kind of builds up and he kind of progresses on. And he goes from history and then he starts talking about King David. And that's, and that's what he does. So join me. Let's look at Paul's mini sermon here to the Jews. And I want to just want to talk about it a little bit. And we're going to look at some of the things he said in there, study on those things, and then we're going to, and then we'll close out. So let's look at verses 16 through 22 and look at how our righteous Trojan horses preach Jesus Christ. Verse 16. Then Paul stood up. Notice he stood up to give the word and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So he stands up kind of like the typical pastor would stand up. Pastors don't preach from their chairs sitting in the couch or sitting in the pew. They stand up. So he stands up. And what does he do next? He addresses his audience, the traditional Jews that were there. But when you look to verse 42, it also in indicates there that there were also converted Gentiles to Judaism that were there. Hence the term proselytes. That's what that means. These are people that were Gentiles, but they crossed over to the Jewish religion because the Judaism allowed for that. They allowed for conversion. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He goes way back to the very start talking about Abraham. I mean, this, this, this goes back, I mean, not, not to Adam and Eve, but this goes way, 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 way back to Abraham, the Canaanite man. Okay, and he, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament and starts his message to speak to them of God's election of the Jews or, or those that were the literal bloodline of Abraham, which was who the Jews uh, of even modern day and the Jews back then were. They were of the bloodline of Abraham. Finish verse 17. And he exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember, God lifted up or greatly multiplied the children of Israel or Jacob from about 75 people into well, roughly in the area of several millions over the amount of time that they were there. Verse 17. Still, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. Bible tells us that after God Almighty multiplied their numbers into the millions, one of Egypt's pharaohs, after so many hundreds of years that they were there, were, were scared that they were going to rebel, right? I mean, after all, if you've got one, you know, one single population of a one type of person in your whole country, and they've grown into millions, and that kind of almost equals or tops the amount of people that you have in your own country, well, what would stop them from taking over? So, I mean, I can understand his fear. He wasn't a godly man, so he got afraid. And because he got afraid, he oppressed them and made them slaves. And, of course, after they cried out to God after so many years, he saw their pain. God wasn't happy that he oppressed them. And so he sent a man by the name of Moses back in Egypt to deliver them from Egypt, or what he called the Iron Furnace, Jeremiah 11.4. Go to verse 18. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Well, God brought his chosen Jews or Israelites out of the iron furnace of Egypt to show them the love and devotion that he had for them, to show them how much he loved them, to show them, hey, I bought you. You're my chosen people. And that he... he he wanted to show him his love and his devotion, and he wanted to show them and, and help them learn his way so that they could follow him and be, you know, like he desired them to. Yet, 
Unfortunately, they rebelled and they complained against God's ways time after time after time after time after time. Anyway, I can go on for about an hour after time after time. And, and, and what happened was that God vowed, he got angry with them, and he, he vowed, first of all, he was going to destroy them. Moses saved them from destruction right, in the moment, right there in, on the spot. But then what God said is, is they, that basically they kept going, they kept complaining. And so after so much time, God said, you know what? None of these people except for a couple guys named Joshua and Caleb, none of the rest of these people are actually going to go into the promised land because they don't really love me. In fact, these people hate me. All they do is complain about the ways that I give them. They complain about my food. They complain about my provision. They complain about this. They complain about that. They complain about this. You know what? They don't love me. So you know what? They're all going to perish in the wilderness. 40 years. That's what Paul's talking about here. And you know what? Who I'm going to take into the promised land, I'm going to take into the promised land their kids. And their kids, I'm going to raise up a brand new generation, a brand new people that maybe they'll love me. Hopefully they'll love me. And I'm going to bring them into the promised land. So that's what Paul is referencing here in verse 18. So uh, they weren't a bunch of complainers, the new children that God brought into the land of, of the promised land. So verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. You see, God gave the promised uh, land bit by bit, not the whole thing all at one time, but he gave it bit by bit to Abraham's children or the children of Abraham or Israelites or Jews as we know them today. And of course, he had to destroy those people of those nations in order to do that. Verse 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. You see, after they were possessors of the land, the Jews went through about a 450-year period where they would, sadly, again, here we go again, they were good for a time until after Joshua died. But then after, after Joshua died, what happened is, is they started complaining and rebelling again. And so they went through this 450-year period where they'd complain, they'd rebel, They'd complain, they'd rebel, they'd complain, they'd rebel. Then every time they'd rebel, every time they'd go against God, every time they'd book God's ways and start worshiping other gods, God would give them over to false gods. He'd give them over to other nations who'd, who'd oppress them and do this to them and hurt them and all this stuff. And every time, of course, he did that so that they would see, hey, my sin, my sin ain't really working out good for me. My sin, it hurts. Hey, let's turn back to the Lord. And so every time they'd fall away from the Lord, God would give them over to these enemies, then they'd come back. And all this happened over and over and over and over. Well, just look at the book of Judges. And over and on again, I won't say, I won't keep going, but over and over and over and over again, right? For 450 years until the Bible says there that God gave them Samuel, the prophet, is kind of like their last prophet. Verse 21. And afterwards, they asked for a king. Uh, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. You see, even though God took such wonderful care of them, it, doesn't God know how to take such wonderful care of those that are His? Amen. Praise God, doesn't He? Amen? Amen? I'm serious. He certainly does. Even though God took such wonderful care of them, for them, for those Jews at the time, uh, Samuel the prophet was kind of just kind of on his way out. He was about to die. He had kept the land pretty good for 40 years. It still wasn't enough. And sadly, they asked for a king. And that would, of course, be to replace Jehovah as their king. How sad was that? And, and even though it grieved God's heart to do this, he gave them their first king, Saul, the son of Kish, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, which he didn't work out because of his sin. And verse 22 says, and when he had removed him, God removed Saul because of the sin of rebellion. You see, rebellion for Samuel, <laughs> Samuel the prophet, he would have known best. First Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And so that's where we see, I'm sure God spoke that to him through seeing what happened to Saul. Saul was a rebellious king and Saul didn't want to do things God's way. And of course, when, as a child of God, your goal is to do the things the way God wants them done. If God gives you something to do and he gives you a work to serve him in, well, you ought to do that work. However, the leading of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit leads you to do that work. Well, Saul, he didn't want to do that. And so you know, that's where 1 Samuel, I'm sure he got that saying, that rebellion is a sin as, uh, sin as witchcraft, because because of his sin, God removed him. And especially when you're the pastor, or when you're the king, or when you're the president of the country and you know God, you really got a lot of responsibility then. Let me tell you what, the higher you go, uh, to, to, to whom much is given, much is required. It's, 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 that's what the Bible says in the New Testament. So Saul failed in this category and wanted all the glory for himself. He, he wanted to do things his way because he wanted the people to praise him. He didn't want to give the praise to God. He wanted to take the praise for himself. So again, verse 22, when he had removed him, the rest of verse 22, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. God, if you're a real Christian, God's looking for that in you. He wants to see, are you going to do his will? He's looking right now to see, are you a man or a woman of my very own heart. Just because David is the only person that we see biblically that gets this title, it's still a biblical concept of God looking at his children and saying and thinking of himself, is that one, is that man, is that woman, is that child, are they going to be a man or a woman after my own heart? And, and of course, he'll have to test you, for the Bible says that God tests the righteous. He'll test you to see, just like he said here, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. He saw David would do his will as where Saul, well, he just wouldn't. So God Almighty replaced the rebellious Saul with a man that God gives the most prestigious title in the whole Bible. David, he says, he found a man after his own heart. Uh, and although he had his ups and downs, poor David, because as all good Christians, and even today, we sometimes will get caught in this sin, or we'll get caught in that sin, or we'll stumble in this sin and stumble in that sin. David didn't live practicing those sins. And when God pointed out to him, David, you sinned. Hey, here's what you've done wrong, David. Guess what David did? David repented. David didn't continue to live in that sin. He turned, unlike the rebellious uh, the rebellious Saul. Uh, unfortunately, that's why Saul was ruined. Making him, and I don't know about you, but my own personal opinion, making David one of Israel's most greatest kings, even above Sam, or, uh, Solomon, excuse me, because I mean, Solomon, although he was the richest and, and, and you know, had the most Proverbs, David, David sought the Lord's heart and David loved the Lord. I, I just don't know how much Solomon really loved God. Anyway, for just a small aside there, before we go on to read more of Paul's sermon and the rest of our verses, I want to point out there that up till now, 
Paul has preached a pretty neat sermon. Uh, but being the righteous Trojan horses that he and Barnabas were, notice he has only preached on them some of Israel's history, right? He has not said one word so far up till now about Jesus Christ. Not one word. He hadn't said, repent, Jesus Christ, Lord, you know, turn, Jesus, be saved. Uh, you know, it was said many years ago in ministry, somebody told me, the only thing we need to do is preach the gospel. That's all we should do is just preach the gospel. Well, just show it to me in the Bible where that's all the preachers of Christ did is they just preached the gospel. Because so far up to now, Paul hasn't preached one word of the gospel. He's preached things about God and the things about the Bible, but he hadn't preached one word of the gospel. He, he's getting there, but he hadn't done it yet. Notice what he did do, though. Notice how he's working his way there because he started talking about David. Why was going in the direction of King David so significant for Paul to talk about? Well, because of a very special promise that God Almighty gave to his son David through the mouth of the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13 and 16. Look at what uh, Nathan tells David about his seed. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up from your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, can anybody live forever in the flesh? Heavens, no. So he's talking about somebody that was going to come after that he was going to set up as king forever. Well, there's only one person that I know right now that's living as a king forever. Well, that'd be the great King Jesus, right? And so verse, six, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Hence the reason our righteous Trojan horses uh, go where they do next. Look at verses 23 through 25. From this man's seed, according to the promise, directly referencing 2 Samuel 7, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Now here he goes, Jesus. There it is. There's our righteous Trojan horse doing the job that God sent him there for. He was sent there to preach Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He starts preaching Jesus Christ. There we see our righteous Trojan horse, Paul, linking the history of Israel to the Savior of all mankind, showing his true colors as a follower of Jesus Christ and not just a Pharisee. And now that Paul's no longer a Trojan horse, he opens up the floodgates. Read verse 24. After John had first preached, now we're all the way fast forwarded to who? The forerunner of Christ. The one who came before to tell Israel to get People prepared to hear the word of the Lord. John the Baptist, he, he was the man to come that was going to tell all Israel, hey, your Messiah is here. And they would have known that. These Jews would have known that. They were Jews. All, all the Jews throughout the whole region and his message spread far and wide. Uh, verse 24, after John had first preached, before his coming, who's coming? Before Jesus Christ's coming. Uh, one of the things John preached, the rest of 24, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Look at 25. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he. Who's he? I'm not the Jewish Messiah. I'm not the one you're looking for to save you. 
I'm not going to be the one that's going to save Israel. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. He is speaking of Jesus the Christ, the real Jewish Messiah, the real and only Savior of the whole world, plus the level of adoration and praise that he had for this coming Messiah. The reason, of course, John was saying all this was, as I just said earlier, John was the forerunner of Christ. He, he was going to bring the, the whole, all of Israel to understand, hey, your Messiah is here. Your Messiah is coming. But also, people respected John. And, and if John said, hey, this one that's coming, hey, he, I, I respect him this. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. Well, well, when you hear, I'm not worthy to tie someone's shoes, you think, Wow. You really think a lot of that person. You don't even, that's their feet. Feet are dirty and that, but you're not even worthy to, to tie their shoes. So John was not only being a forerunner proclaiming Christ to all the Jews, but also he was telling them, hey guys, this is how much I respect him. This is how much you should respect him. He is the Messiah. He is your real king. Wow. Paul was there to preach Jesus Christ, and boy, oh boy, was he ever preaching Jesus Christ. Look to verse 26. He keeps going. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Uh, getting their attention as if he didn't already have it. I'm sure by now, you know, of course, they thought they were going to hear a word, a word of exhortation on the scripture of the prophecy read by a Jew. Here, their heads were probably spinning. He, Jesus the Christ, what, 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 we've already given him the floor. You know, what do you, you do? You know, he's already there. He addresses them again, reminds them uh, who this message was to, those of God's election of Israel, and those who had joined themselves to the Jews, so the converted Gentile believers in Judaism. Verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. God, through Paul, speaks of how God allowed some of the Jews to be blinded and to reject Jesus Christ. And of course, this happened so that salvation could come to all humanity as all, even to the Gentiles. Verse 28, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Something that God also actually, if you notice there, ordained. Yes, that's right. God ordained when God has a will and God says, this thing will happen. Well, the book of Revelation says that he is one that opens doors that no one can shut and that he is one that shuts doors that no man can open. And so God here had a plan. He said, I'm working salvation out to all humanity and my son's going to have to go and they're going to have to kill him and he's going to have to rise again because I want to I bring forth the Savior for all mankind. And so somebody is going to have to be the unfortunate person that's going to not have to believe. I'm going to kind of blind their eyes and they're going to have to kill him because he's got to die. And he can't commit suicide. Somebody's got to kill him. So of course, here we read that God, uh, you know, made for, uh, divined, sovereignly, someone to kill him so that he could make salvation for all mankind. Verse 29. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Finishing up the details of both his end of his life, the Christ, and the beginning of his new life of his resurrected body. Pretty awesome sermon so far, isn't it? How Paul came in there kind of sly and he gave him some history and gave him some, you know, 
some, some, some Jewish ways and say, hey, David, bringing up David. Now, how he linked it, his sermons were kind of like progressive. This is how I like to teach too. I like to teach progressive where I don't just, I, I start out and I build up. I kind of build up and I link things together. This is how, this is how David thought. Now, now as, as awesome as you may have thought it is already, I think you're going to be even more impressed when I show you the next thing. Do you realize the major thing that these right that this righteous Trojan horse just did, Paul here? Do you do you realize the major thing that he did? Did you realize already by now? Maybe you didn't already that he slipped him the gospel. Did you realize that he didn't say it through the history, but he slipped him the gospel. He talked about how Jesus Christ lived, how it was born of the line of David, how he was put to death, and after that, how he was raised from the dead. There's the gospel in a nutshell. He lived. He died, he rose again to pay for the sins of humanity. <laughs> Jesus Christ in Matthew 10, 16 says this. this uh, he says this of his servants. He says that his servants should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And we definitely see Paul here being wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. His intentions were pure, but he slipped in the gospel. That's as wise as a serpent. He didn't just stand up and say, all right, I'm here to preach Jesus Christ today. Yeah, he lived, died, rose again. Now, come on, all who believe, let's go. He didn't do that. He slipped it in and he, inter- and he intertwined it with other things. And he made this beautiful sermon that, that kept their attention, that kept their interest in the history of Israel. And, and then upon that, he slipped them the gospel. You see how sly that was? Paul was an awesome preacher. Uh, but Paul did not stop slipping them godly surprises just yet. He didn't stop with giving them the gospel. He goes on to give them one more thing. Look at verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to all the people. What did he just do there? Paul just gave them reason to believe that this was an accurate thing that they could actually believe in rather than just his opinion. He gave them a reason that his faith was justified. You see, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5-6, Paul says this. He kind of says the same thing, but he says it a little different way. He says, and after Christ was risen, that is. And that he was seen by Cephas, which would be Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. What did Paul just do there? Again, same thing. You have a reason why you can believe. Because it's not just me. I'm not just telling you that I'm the one that saw him. I'm telling you that all of his original followers saw him. And then I'm telling you that not only us, but 500 more people. And, and you know what? They're alive. You can actually go to them and you could talk to them about their testimony of how they saw Jesus Christ. And so what that does is, is that gives that gives reason wow what's well, not just you that are making up this story that this guy did this thing well that's that's some proof that i can rest my that i can rest my faith in jesus christ on and that's what paul just did for these people here he just told them the same thing hey hey guys all these people that saw him hey there's more than i there's lots more people than i and, and he says there that these people all these people were witnesses to these people 
Why would they be witnesses to these people? Well, of course, because they could testify of the truth to any of them. They could, any of these people could have gone back to, hey, did you really see? Yeah, I saw Jesus. Man, resurrect. Oh, man, he, he, I saw him die and then oh, he rose again. Oh, it's amazing. It's awesome. Because, yes, even though Jesus Christ did what he did for God Almighty to save mankind, God doesn't just expect anyone to believe him unconditionally with blind faith. Blind faith is stupid. God doesn't say have blind faith. He says have faith, but then here's reason to believe. Okay, God gives us lots of proofs to help people come to have faith in Christ and also to continue to have faith in Christ. God helps me have faith by taking care of me in supernatural ways. He, he gives me lots of faith by making divine things happen in my life. And all these are proofs that, wow, God, you're awesome. You, there's no way that could have happened. That's supernatural. Wow, you made that thing happen. Wow. And then what does that do? That strengthens my faith because we need, our faith needs to be strengthened. None of us are, are, are just supernatural strong in faith just on our own. We, we need our faith strengthened. And that's, of course, what the Bible helps us do. And then God providing for us and taking care of us. Anyway, moving on. He goes on in verse 32 and he says this. Now we. And now, now we're putting the focus on, hey, we're here with you. And we declare you glad tidings. Uh, what kind of good news? Glad tidings all just means good news. That promise which was made to the fathers. Paul declaring to uh, his and Barnabas' personal testimony of the good news that Jesus Christ was indeed the Christ, the promised one of God, coming from the line of David, the Jewish Messiah, and now he gives personal testimony. Hey, even I, I'm a witness. Now, not only all these other people that have seen him, but now me, I've also seen him too. You can trust this, guys. You can trust this. Verse 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. God fulfilling to his elect Jews what he indeed uh, did inspire David to write. This would be Psalm 2.7. This actual quote here would be from Psalm 2.7, verse 34. And that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David, Isaiah 55, 3. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Indeed, God did reveal this to David in Psalm 16:10. You see, although Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, said he never saw corruption. He never, God never let his body decompose in the ground like other people's bodies die. God kept this, this, this one special thing just for Jesus Christ. And, and there's a reason why scientifically, actually, I taught a sermon on this way back. It was because it was cold and Christ's body didn't decompose because of the cold weather at that time. But anyway, this was an exclusive thing for the one who would be called Messiah, the one from the line of David. As Paul, our righteous chosen horse, points out in verses 36 and 37, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. Da David was not talking about himself in Psalm 1610. No. People could think that. People could think David was talking about himself, but no. Paul points out here, no. This was not for David. Verse 37, But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. David wasn't writing about himself. David, he says, he went to the ground. He was buried. He, he's gone. He, he's, he's, he's done for. But this Jesus, this Christ, no, he was the Messiah. And he, his body didn't see corruption. And that's what David was talking about it. 
Now, now break for a moment and think about this. So Paul's given them the gospel, plus proof that the gospel was an accurate historical detail that they can believe and trust, adding Jesus Christ's fulfillments of the prophecies and, and all the things that he's just shown them out, plus all the people that he said, hey, these people have seen, you can believe them. Uh, he has sure shown them enough to be able to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God, the true Messiah, hasn't he? I would think he's absolutely given them enough. Now, now, you think he'd done enough for them already, but has he? He hasn't quite. He goes, another, he goes another step. He actually has a couple more huge things to add. Uh, some huge things that an awesome sermon can't be without. Look at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. He, he shares with them as he says in verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now here, here's the deal. Back in the Old Testament, as we talked about in communion, as we've talked about many times in this church, you cannot be saved by the keeping of the law. You cannot be saved because you do enough good works or you do enough of the service to God. Oh, I, I, I preached to 75 million people and they all got saved. Or I, 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 helped, I helped out these, these people, and I did this, and, and I did that, and oh, I did enough sacrifices. Oh, I did it. The Bible says that no salvation came from that. The only thing that comes from that is God saying, here's what I want you to do, my kids. He gave, God gave those things to his kids so that they would serve him, to show their love for him, not so that they could have a right relationship with him to start out with. For nobody's saved by their good works. But, but in verse 38, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. You see, through Christ and Christ alone comes the forgiveness of sins, and not by the law, and not by the prophets, and not by the keeping of the good works that you can do just so many, and then you're good. And because these good works and sacrifices under the old covenant could not make anyone justified or cleansed before God, Paul tells him here, God made a new way. The only way you could be justified, the only way you could be saved is through this man, Jesus Christ. And this is what he tells here. But please don't be deceived into thinking that just having a belief in Jesus Christ will save you. Uh, just any, any certain belief or make you justified by God. Because the Bible says that even the demons believe in him. And we know that they aren't saved or justified before God. Uh, and so it's not just any head belief that, Paul, that Paul's talking about here that justifies anyone. For if it was, he wouldn't have said what he did in Romans 10.9. He says this, that it's not the head belief that saves, it's the heart belief that saves. For anyone who confesses the Lord Jesus and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead or that he is who he said that he was, then that one shall be saved. Now, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart and not just any kind of belief, including your head? I'm going to get to this at the end of the sermon. But getting back to our text for now, did you notice that Paul didn't just give the people that he was preaching to the good news and the forgiveness of sins, preach Jesus Christ alone, then he just didn't just leave it at that. That's important. That's, that's important. Why did he go on to tell them all what he did after the good news of Jesus Christ? Why did he tell them that there was something that they had to do? Why did he talk about, through this man has preached to you forgiveness of sins? Why did he say you had to believe on him and, and we know scripturally with your heart? Why did he say that? Because of one special thing. It's called, because of what Jesus Christ did, God re requires, he demands 
a response. He demands you to respond to what you hear. You see, the Bible says in many words, many, that Jesus Christ loved or loves still today the whole world and anyone in it, and that he gave up his life to death for us. And in the greatest show of amazing love ever. But, 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 please listen up, my family, my friends, my faithful online listeners to Gospel Saving Church on SoundCloud. It's time for one of my famous sayings here. Just because Jesus Christ loves the whole world and anyone and everyone, and including you, with an amazing love, a love that you'll never, ever, 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 ever find anywhere else, doesn't mean that everyone or even you are okay with Jesus Christ. You see, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for mankind called the gospel requires people to respond. You will either respond in acceptance or you will, res- you will uh, uh, respond with rejection. Uh, we will either hear what Jesus Christ has done for us and we'll turn to him and we'll believe with all our hearts or we'll turn away from him and we'll deny and we'll j- reject him with all our hearts. And depending on how you respond to his love and sacrifice towards you, depends on if, 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 if you're saved and if you're justified before God. It all depends. And it's just that simple. Uh, but assuredly, nobody is saved and made right in God's eyes by uh, unto salvation by just the powerful truth that Jesus Christ loved us and lived and died and rose again unless they respond to that truth with a heart belief. And, and, and so much so, it may not seem logical, But just think about these examples I give here. Nobody, and you'll totally agree with this here, nobody's a billionaire just because we know that Donald Trump and Bill Gates and people like them and and Steve Jobs was a billionaire. I know that they're billionaires. Does that make me a billionaire? Sorry. I I just know it. That doesn't do anything for me. Uh, Same fact that this. Nobody's part of my family just because they may know that I have a family. I know a lot of people that know I have a family. They're not part of my family just because they know I have a family, right? Uh, Same as, this is the most powerful one, I think. Just because a man may have a dear and passionate love for a beautiful woman. I mean, he could long for her to hold him in his arms and, and fantasize about holding her and going out on dates. And Just because he may have this passionate love for her doesn't make them married, right? He, oh, he may love her with all his heart. But that doesn't mean just because he loves her that they're married, right? It takes a response to that love. It would take his response doing, doing something to get her attention, to, to show his love for her. And then it would take her what? Responding to his love and saying, yes, I'll, yes, I'll be your wife. Oh, yes let's, let's, yes, let's be together, right? It takes a response. Same thing with Jesus Christ. No one is saved or justified with God by, in his sight just because he loves you, just because you may know he loves you. And it is because of this truth that, that, I, that I just spoke on that our righteous Trojan horse Paul says what he does next. Look at verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is spoken by the prophets come upon you, Habakkuk 1.5. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which will by no means believe the one were to declare it to you. Or in other words, ladies and gentlemen, please don't reject this knowledge that I'm giving you. Please don't just hear it and just do nothing with it. Please, I'm begging you, don't harden your hearts 
toward this truth. Accept this truth. Respond to this truth. Because if you reject it, then what Habakkuk said, what God said through Habakkuk will come upon you. Disaster. Bad. Right? That's, that's his warning. But because, of course, if anyone desires, or denies Jesus Christ and doesn't heart believe in him as he who he said he was, the Christ of God, and they don't repent or surrender to him with all their heart and heart belief as the Lord and Christ that he is, then, of course, they can't be saved and they won't be justified by his life and death and resurrection. Look at how his listeners respond to his sermon. Verses 42 and 43 to close this out. So when the Jews went out from the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. They they needed some time to listen and hear about Jesus Christ more and and come to repentance and have a saving heart belief or or, or rejection of him. Uh, This was a huge decision. (laughs) I, I can't blame him and neither does God. I mean, Paul calls for a response right now. Of course. And of course, the gospel does call for a response right now. But these people here, they kind of wanted to do what Jesus did. Jesus said, count the cost. And that's really what they were doing. They they were kind of counting the cost. Is is Jesus really the Christ? And God wasn't mad at them. They wanted time to contemplate all that they heard. Plus, they kind of wanted to hear some more. Luke 14, like I said, Jesus said, count the cost. Am I worth it? Am I worth it or am I not worth it? They they need a little time. But verse 43, some of the good news. And when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, as it had been the converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Praise God, it looks like many Jews, uh, doesn't say all, sadly, uh, decided to follow Paul and Barnabas, which is an amazing indication, by the way. You may, you may be saying, Pastor Ed, no one says that it doesn't say there that these people got saved. I, it kind of does. It, it kind of does. Because listen here, it, it's... That they decided to follow Paul and Barnabas is an indication that they turned to Jesus Christ with their heart. Because listen, if you begin to follow Jesus Christ and you begin to have that heart belief of Jesus Christ, you want to hang out with those who have fellowship with him. And that's just the kind of kind of thing that happens. You know, you come and surrender to Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to want to be part of people that are with Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to be with the people of Jesus Christ, what is that an indication of? Well, that's an indication that you don't love Jesus Christ and you don't have a heart believe in Jesus Christ also. So the fact that they want to follow Paul and Barnabas here and that they is, is a sign to me that they turned and they did repent and they accepted him. And, and uh, you know that, that's awesome. So I do see these people as getting saved. Uh, and, and then here's an even more interesting part. After they decide to believe in Jesus Christ with their heart, then Paul and Barnabas encouraged them right from the moment they believe with their heart, this is interesting here, to endure in how they first believed in Jesus Christ and how they first repented and turned to Jesus Christ with a heart belief. I think by what he says there that endurance in the correct belief in Jesus Christ is a pretty important part of one's true salvation, I would say. I mean, the very day that they get saved, he's encouraging them to endure to the end? I mean, you'd think that'd be for someone that's been saved for several years, you know. Come on, man. From the moment these people got saved, he encouraged them in the grace of the Lord to continue. So I think that endurance is kind of just as important as your first believing. So uh, some believe in their hearts, getting back. Some need time to think about it and want to hear some more next week. That's a pretty good turnout in my eyes. 
that's a pretty good turnout. My, I, I seem like, wow, that's praise God. That's that, I, that's that's a pretty good turnout for anybody's evangelistic you know, outreach, right? So Paul and Barnabas, they do an amazing job of being righteous Trojan horses, don't they? I think that they did in they, they did an awesome job. They they slid in. They gave them some history. They kept them interested. After they were there for a little while, they were wise as serpents and innocent as doves. They slid in Christ. Then they slid in the gospel. Uh, personally, I don't think that they even intended to be Trojan horses because the actual idea of a Trojan horse is unrighteous. But they were righteous because I don't think that they, just in my opinion now, I don't think that they went in there to deceive them. I think that, that once they were there, they meant to preach the gospel, but not in the way that God gave them the stage. But God gave them the stage, so what did they do? They took it. Praise God. You know, Christian, if God's going to get, God can give you stages like that today. God can give you stages where you, you just walk in, hey, I'm just available for you, Lord. Hey, use me. That, that should be all of our heart cries, guys. If we're really true followers of Christ, our heart cries every morning, every day should be, God, use me as you want today. Lord, I'm available for you. Wherever I go, wherever you put me, use me. Paul and Barnabas here, they were on a specific mission, but us today, maybe we're not on a specific mission, but everybody's on a mission for God, and, and that's called, go ye therefore and all the earth and preach the gospel, which was given to every creature, which was given to everybody who righteously believes in Christ. Okay, so it's important that we stay ready. It's important that we stay focused on, God, use me. Hey, I'll be your Trojan horse wherever you send me, Lord God. If, if you want to send me in here or send me in there, and then you open up a stage for me like you did Paul and Barnabas in, in Acts chapter 13, then Lord, well, hey, I'm here for you, Lord. Open up the stage, and I'll get up on that, I'll get up on that, that box, or I'll, I'll, what, I'll stand up like Paul did here, and I'll, and I'll preach Jesus Christ for you. I think that should be something that we should be keeping on the forefronts of our minds. If God puts you on a stage like this, use it for His divine glory to preach and raise the name of Jesus Christ. That's what God's desire is for all of His kids. Now, away from us, away from those who righteously believe in Christ, I want to talk about, in closing, I want to talk about the idea of what it means to have a heart belief in Jesus Christ versus just any belief in your head of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9, heart belief of Jesus Christ is True salvation. It is true salvation. I find it ironic because I see the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit confirms and He directs and He leads and He guides His children. Well, one of our praise and worship songs today that we had for our church was just all about how God pursues us and how we have to give all of ourselves to God. Yet the young man who led our worship today, well, he had no idea that this was even going to be a part of my sermon. Pretty ironic how the Holy Spirit works in His church, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. So anyway, this heart belief of, of Jesus Christ is true salvation. For Paul states emphatically in that section in, in 10.9, he says that if you believe in your, if you believe that Jesus Christ, if, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and if you believe on Him and you're in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, or you could say that He is who God, who He said that He was, that you shall be saved. All right, there's no ifs, ands, buts, or coconuts about it. If you have this heart belief, you will be saved. So what's the difference between the saving heart belief in Jesus Christ versus just a head belief or, you know, just any belief in him? Well, I'm going to give you some differences here. Just any belief or, or a head belief it is the same type of belief that the demons have in Jesus Christ. I mean, they worshiped him. They were forced to. 
and they confessed him as Lord for that's what, you know, they had everybody will every, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So everybody will, they did, but their belief in him wasn't one of willful commitment. It wasn't something that they wanted to do. It was something that they had to do. It wasn't one of willful devotion or willful dedication or, or a true love for belief. Like a man loves a woman to get married or a woman loves a man to get married. A head belief of Jesus Christ is only the acknowledgement of him as you would acknowledge the sun in the sky or, or the moon or the stars and, and the millions of other beliefs that you may have of all of God's creation and all of that you have of life. Now, please understand with this kind of head belief, anyone, even you, can and will acknowledge, or maybe you, maybe you will if you want to, maybe acknowledge the wonderful attributes of the characteristics of God and Jesus Christ, and even speak of Him in a kind and passionate way. Even with just the head knowledge, people will do that. Because God showed me this. Think about it this way. Although I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, even before I was a believer in Jesus Christ, I still said some amazing things. I, I speak of the universe in relation to a powerful proof that God and Christ exist. And, and I do it with passion when I do it. I love talking about how all creation testifies of God. And, and I talk about how many wonderful and awesome attributes that all creation has and the universe has. And I do that because I believe with my head of, of the universe and, and that I'm aware of it. I believe in those things in my head. But this belief that I have of the universe, although I may talk about it so righteously and so awesomely and so intimately and so powerfully, this belief I have in the universe isn't a devoted or dedicated or a love for or a committed or a willful love relationship that I have with it. Nobody's going to have a relationship with the universe. That's just impossible. It's just out there for us to look at, to, to testify of God. But I still spoke of it. Whoa, man, all creation's awesome. You'd think that I did have a relationship with the, with the universe, but I don't because you can't. So, so even a head relationship will even lead uh, to, to you speaking of something, even though you may not have the heart relationship with it, you may have a head, a head belief in it and speak of it in a really powerful and awesome way. So sometimes people may seem to have a real heart belief in Jesus Christ because of the ways in which they speak of him. Speaking of all his goodness and his glory and his promises and oh my goodness, so many people that I know speak of God's promises and oh how awesome God is. And yet the very next post on their Facebook account, the, the very next one after they just spoke of God's glory and God's awesomeness and his promises will be a oh, blank this and F this and blank that and oh S this. And yet you think, Wow, they just they were just talking so great about God. Well, well, that's because God just showed me. I just doing the sermon. He showed me that you as with a head belief, you could talk all kinds of good things about something or someone, but that doesn't mean that you're connected or that you believe in your heart about them or that you have a heart-loving, willful, you know, committed relationship with them. You could just talk about people and things with a real awesome, you know, zeal even if you just believe in them with your head. And then then there that made sense how people could say all those awesome things about God, but still not show proofs that they love him outside of that one little statement that they'll make. So, so just beware. Uh, just because you have a head belief in God doesn't mean that you have a heart belief in God. It's interesting. God showed me that. Uh, now, now, believe in Jesus Christ in your heart 
in your heart, as Paul says, is a belief that causes you to acknowledge who he said he is. What is that? He he said he was the Christ, the Savior of the world, Lord of all, and the only way to eternal life uh, for everyone that's on the face of the planet. Because I do find it very funny. Many religious people that I talk to, even people that are religious that believe themselves to be in in a a Christian or Catholic denomination, they'll they'll speak of Jesus as, you know, the Son of God and everything, and they'll speak, but then you say, well, what what about, you know, he's the Savior of all mankind. Well, well, now... And, you know, now what about the Muslim religion? You know, what about the Buddhists? And, you know, what about the Hindus? Are you saying that, that those people aren't going to go to heaven and even though they believe in Buddhism or Hinduism? And, and I'll say, well, no, that's what the Bible says. But right then and there, that's got to be an indication to you. Think of this. Jesus, if you, if you confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well, God only raised the Christ from the dead. So right then and there, even if somebody says something really powerful to you about Jesus Christ, something awesome about his promise and, and how good he is and how, how, you know, how kind of promises he has, but then they deny the fact that he's actually the only way to salvation, they miss the heart belief. They don't believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They don't believe in their heart that he is the only way to salvation. Therefore, as Paul says in Romans 10, 9, they don't have the heart belief they can't be saved. It's impossible. But that's what the Bible says. It's not my word. It's the Bible. Okay, that's what the Bible says. So, so a heart belief is one where you acknowledge and surrender to the idea that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. Uh, plus, this heart belief is one that causes you to submit your life to him. As a man to a woman or a woman to a man who commit their lives to one another in holy biblical marriage. Living what? When I'm married, I don't live for my buddy. When I'm married, I don't, I don't live for my car. I don't live for my house. I live for my Lord. I live for Him first and foremost of all. I'm committed to Him. What else? Finding out what she, how, do I, how do I love my, my wife? How do I love my brethren in the Lord, in, in Christ? Finding out what, she, what each other loves and doing those things. Right? That's pretty important, right? When you're married, finding out what your spouse loves and then doing those things. And then what else? Finding out what your, what your spouse hates and then what? Not doing those things. It's called real love. Uh, being dedicated to each other. This is a heart belief. This is a belief of the heart of marriage. People that get married, they believe in their hearts and their spouses and in that marriage. And then they do all these things and they live for one another through biblical marriage until they die. A surrendered belief that must continue without you divorcing, or that's right, the Bible says that you can cause God to divorce you and and the grace of God until your death or rapture. As Paul encouraged those we saw here come to a heart belief in Jesus Christ in our text today. So the heart belief that must continue daily, willfully submitting and surrendering your life to Christ uh, and walking, living that way in Christ until your life, until your life is extinguished or until Christ comes back and gets you and living it willfully daily to him. The very heart belief that Christ spoke about in Matthew 16, 24, 25, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. See, we're all born as lords of our lives. We're all born as I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the ruler of my destiny. 
Right? That's how we're born. And that's no sense why Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take yourself off the throne of your life and give Jesus Christ that space. Give him all of yourself, just like that song that we sung today. Just like that song. And then he goes on in verse 25, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, see, there's a loss of, I don't, not me anymore. Jesus Christ, it's for you. You making Jesus Christ your master, which means that you make a decision in your life, in your heart to follow him and make yourself a servant, make yourself married to Jesus Christ. The cross before me, the world behind me. Let Jesus Christ lead you and guide you. Jesus, I want you to rule my life now and forevermore. And then going to his word and searching his word for direction for the ways in which you're supposed to live and operate in this world. Now thinking about one thing, as I said in this message today, and concerning us today who are listening, even though Jesus Christ loves you, even though Jesus Christ loves me, doesn't make that doesn't make you saved, doesn't make you born again. Do you have a heart belief in Jesus Christ by what I spoke of, or do you have a head belief? Do you speak of Jesus Christ in nice ways and the things that God says is nice ways and nice things, but then are you concerned with the things that he loves? Are you concerned yourself with the things that he hates? Are you looking at things that he loves and doing those things? And are you looking at the things that he hates and not doing those things? God knows, and so do you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When, when you come to this heart belief, your life changes. <laughs> your life becomes all about Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I want to I close with this last thing. God gave me this last thing. This is, this is in a nutshell. You could think of heart belief versus head belief. This is heart belief. His life was all about you. He wants your life to be all about Him in devotion, commitment, and being sold out. Will you surrender today or will you keep trying to get to heaven your own way, holding yourself back from His Lordship? He gave up everything for you. It's no wonder He asks us to give everything of ourselves to Him He gave up everything for you to show the type of love that he loves you with. He wants that type of love back. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for all that you do for us, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, for all your precious promises, Lord God. But thank you, Lord God, also, Lord God, that if we run to you as our refuge and if we submit our lives before the cross of Christ and if we surrender our lives to Jesus, Lord God, and we give ourselves to you, Lord God, that you could make us new. Thank you, Lord God. And I I pray, Lord God, right now for uh, all of us, Lord, that are listening to this message, Lord God, wherever we may be, far and wide. Lord God, for those that are yours, Lord God, I pray that they would look for those opportune stages, Lord God, that you may give them in their lives. And Lord, when they get those opportune stages, Lord God, I pray that they take them and that they would exalt and raise up the name of Jesus Christ and exalt your, your mighty glory and your salvation on high, just as Paul and Barnabas, our righteous soldiers, did here. Lord God, and if those that are listening, Lord, if any that are are not saved, 
Lord God. They, they think they were, or they thought they were, Lord, but they come to find out as I gave the ideas of a heart belief versus a head belief, Lord God, they see that they only have a heart belief, or they only have a head belief, Lord, that they, they know, they acknowledge all your wonderful things, and all your greatness, and all your glory, and all your promises, but Lord, their lives aren't surrendered to you. Their lives aren't submitted to you, Lord God, like a man is to a woman who they decide to get married, or a woman is to a man, they decide to get married, Lord, and to death they're apart, and we stop living for others, and Lord, we just live for the one that we get married, Lord. That's the heart belief that you're looking for. And I pray, dear God, right now, you want all of us, Lord, I pray that they would make that commitment even today, Lord God, that they would get on their knees at home and and cry out to you and tell you that they're sorry for rebelling against you and and tell tell you that they're sorry to you, Lord God, for all the ways in which they, they thought they were yours, but they really weren't. And I pray that they would give you their hearts, Lord God. I pray that they would give you their hearts in love and in a willful, committed relationship, Lord God, as you're waiting for. Father God, their lives will change. God, please bring them to that place. We love you and praise you and thank you and ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.